It's really a pleasure to be back this morning, um, this morning that we get to light the joy candle and reflect on that as well. Um, Those that have been here for a few weeks will know that for the past weeks we've looked at the story of Zechariah, and this is our our final week looking at Zechariah's narrative. And I I said for the past couple weeks that the overarching narrative of Zechariah can be summarized as uh, from doubt through discipline to deliverance. And this week, we get to look at deliverance. We get to look at the joyful song that Zechariah sings in Luke 1. So let's get right into our text this morning, starting in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's a beautiful song, a beautiful hymn that we get to look into this morning. The first thing that I want to realize, uh, want us to realize, sorry, about our passage is that I think it's essentially a game of Old Testament connect the dots, right? That Zechariah in this poem, or Luke through Zechariah, and the New Testament authors in general, go to great lengths to weave together narratives of the Old Testament, to weave together all these almost loose ends in the Old Testament stories, in the story of the people of Israel, all these prophecies and all these expectations for salvation, and they weave them together to show that they're being fulfilled in Jesus, right? The Old Testament looks toward Jesus, and the New Testament testifies to Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, right? And that's going to be significant for this week. It's going to be significant in the way that we understand Zachariah's song. A few people last week mentioned that they appreciated that I brought in just a couple lines of poetry from George Herbert. And so I wanted to read just just a couple lines again from a poem called The Holy Scriptures. It says this, Oh, that I knew how all thy lights combine and the configurations of their glory, seeing not only how each verse doth shine, but all the constellations of the story. Seeing not only how each verse doth shine, but all the constellations of the story. So Herbert pictures scripture as the night sky. And what he says is that it's not just individual verses, not just individual moments of light, individual truths or stories, but that the stories combine into an image, into a constellation. And what we see Zachariah doing this morning is connecting those dots, connecting the the, the stars of the constellation. And the picture that emerges in Zachariah's song and throughout the New Testament the portrait that emerges is a portrait of Jesus, right? It's, it's a pleasure 
to be able to dig into a beautiful text this morning, a rich text this morning. And, and just a note as well, as readers or as interpreters, when we approach a, a poem or a song like we are this morning, we should have that much more expectation for the depth of meaning, the layers of illusion and symbolism, and the significance that a single word can carry. And so we're going to try to read with that mindset. Taking as an example even Mary's song, which providentially we already had read this morning, um, pieces of it. If you look at that song as well, both Mary's song in Luke 1 and Zechariah's song, they're almost, almost a cut and paste of Old Testament verses, right? If you don't understand the context of those verses, then you miss a lot of what the songs are trying to say. If we don't see the illusions, we miss out on a lot. And so, just, just so you, you know, um, in Zechariah's song, I think a, a low estimate for the number of illusions, it's, it's an 11-verse song, a low estimate for how many Old Testament illusions would be like 2022. Um, so averaging about two per verse. And so we're just going to go and we're going to look at all 22 Old Testament. No, I'm kidding. Um, what we're going to do this morning to give you a sense of where we're going, we're going to look at just four snapshots, four key pieces of context from Israel's history, key pieces of this Old Testament expectation for how God was going to act and how God was going to save Verses that I just think are indispensable for this text. Um, and then at the end, we'll, we'll reread our text and hopefully have a, a new appreciation um, for its depth and its beauty and all that it should mean to us. So let's pray together for that end. Oh God, would you be with us um, and, and open our eyes to the beauties of your word and to the beautiful portrait of you that it paints. In Jesus' name, amen. So, four touch points, four snapshots of Israel's history, four contexts, pieces of expectation to look at. And, and as we go through these, I'm going to try to give a little bit of, a, of a, a meta history, a macro history of Israel, just so we can situate a little bit where we're going. The first is the Abrahamic covenant. We, we already saw the figure of Abraham a couple weeks ago in, in recognizing the parallel between Zechariah and Abraham. Um, but Abraham is a significant figure. He's the, the patriarch of Israel, the, the founder of Israel, the, the initial recipient of the promise. And so I'm, I'm going to read from Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. This is the promise that God gives to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right? So God is going to make Abraham's descendants a great nation, which we know becomes the nation of Israel. And he's going to give him a land, which becomes referred to as the promised land. And then what begins as a national, what begins as a nearly national or political blessing, is going to become a universal blessing to all the families of the earth, our text says. Someday God is going to use Israel to bless the world. That's our first piece of context, Abrahamic covenant. Second piece of context, 
is the exodus from Egypt, right? Seeing that God visited and redeemed Israel from slavery to Egypt. And many of these stories will be familiar, but they're worth looking at again this morning as we understand Zechariah's song. And what we see is the nation of Israel, this people descended from Abraham, go into slavery in Egypt a few generations after Abraham, and they're there in slavery for 400 years. And tell God meets Moses in the burning bush and ordains, this is Exodus 3, the famous passage of Scripture, ordains that through Moses, God was going to lead Israel out of slavery to the land promised to Abraham. Right? Meta history, big, big picture history of Israel. And what happens is after Moses meets God in the burning bush, he goes back to the people and he explains first to his brother Aaron and then to the elders of the people everything that God is going to do for them. Every, every, all the signs that he was sent to perform, the way in which he was going to bring them from slavery. And so to look at just one verse, one significant verse from Exodus 4, 31, it says this, And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. That he visited the people of Israel. All right. That's our second piece of context. The first two are a little um, simple, maybe a little shorter than the next one. So track with me. We're doing some heavy lifting, collecting pieces, collecting dots up front. Um, but the payoff is, is so worthwhile. Third piece of context, the expectation for a Messiah. And we're going to look at two different verses um, from which this expectation comes, and even where the word Messiah comes from. First, we're going to look at Hannah's prayer, and then we're going to look at the Davidic covenant, another Old Testament covenant. All right. And so, big picture history, Israel comes out of slavery led by Moses and then by Joshua, and then there's this period that we often refer to as the period of the judges or the prophets, these spiritual leaders of Israel. But the judges, where we are going to zoom into our story for a sec, are, are going to be supplanted by kings. And the most significant figure, and there's two books of the Bible named after him, Samuel, the most significant figure in this transition is the prophet Samuel, right? Samuel is the kingmaker, Samuel is the prophet to whom God entrusts the anointing of Israel's first kings. Okay? So we're zooming in a little more. At the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, we see Hannah, Samuel's mother, and we see her story of barrenness. We see her story of childlessness, which actually in many ways resembles Elizabeth's story that we looked at a couple weeks ago. And there's a whole other Bible message just looking at the parallels between Hannah and Elizabeth, um, and the parallels between Samuel and John the Baptist, but that's not today's Bible message. So we see Hannah's story of barrenness in 1 Samuel until finally God gives Hannah a child, and Hannah sings a song of praise, right? So what we have in Mary's song in Luke 1 and in Zechariah's song in Luke 1 in our passage this morning has a historical precedent. And this, the precedent for this song comes from Hannah's song. And I'm not going to read the whole song, though it's, it's worthwhile in and of itself. I'm just going to read the, the final verse. 
So this is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. It says this, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Some significant imagery that's going to come back. And actually that last word, that last word anointed, is the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. And so what Hannah does is she takes this word Messiah, Messiah, sorry, um, which is often translated either as anointed or anointed one or holy one. But up to this point in the Old Testament, the word Messiah referred to things, not a person. It actually referred to the articles of the temple, the instruments with, with, with which Israel or the the priests of Israel would perform the temple rituals, the anointed items of the temple. And then it expands a little bit in the Old Testament, and it comes to refer to the priests. And so the the priests as a whole could be seen as Messiah priests, the anointed priests. And then what Hannah does here is she says, there's going to be an anointed, his anointed. That what was before this descriptive adjective becomes a title the anointed one, the holy one, right? It's a significant thing that happens. By the way, we refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ, Christ being the Greek translation of the word Messiah. So this name that we most closely associate with our Lord and Savior comes initially from Hannah's song. And from this point in the Old Testament, a whole bunch of very complex expectation, messianic expectation comes. And I actually, a few years back, a number of years back, I took an entire fourth year seminar course on just Jesus as Messiah, tracking all the ways that this word is used in the Old Testament, all the the depth of expectation, the depth of meaning associated with this single word, Messiah. And so we don't have time to go into the depth of that this morning. But what I do want us to see is one significant messianic expectation, and that's the expectation for a messianic king, for an anointed king. And that comes primarily through what I called the Davidic covenant, which where God once made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be made a great nation and they would receive a land, God again makes a promise with David in 2 Samuel 7. And I know this is, it might feel like Drinking from a fire hose a little bit, it's a lot of context, but if, but if you track with me, it'll be worthwhile. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 16, just the two verses, says this. This is God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you offspring who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So David, who becomes the great king of Israel, God tells him that there's going to be an even greater king, that his descendant is going to sit on the throne and that that throne is going to be established forever, that his kingdom will be established forever. So recap, Abrahamic covenant, Exodus, 
and expectation for Messiah. First three pieces of context. Fourth piece of context that builds on what we've already seen. The expectation that Israel is going to be saved from exile, right? So again, big picture history. David does have a son whose name is Solomon, and Solomon's reign does not last forever. Far from it, it actually collapses, and then shortly after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel is divided. So it seems a little bit maybe like the promise to David isn't going well. Israel was divided into a northern and a southern kingdom, and the kings of those two kingdoms are generally pretty terrible. <laughs> if you look at this history, they're, they're, they're not a nice bunch, to put it mildly and perhaps a little silly. But regardless, kings aren't going well, and God chooses to send the people of Israel into exile. And so the Babylonian Empire, the Chaldean Empire, it's sometimes called in Scripture, comes and takes over and exiles the leaders of Israel to Babylon. And if you're reading the book of Daniel, that's where you find yourself in that historical context, Israel in exile in Babylon. Again, this is big, big picture history. And then from there, the Assyrians, another empire of the ancient world, wipes out the Babylonians. And so at that point, the Israelites are sort of allowed to go back to, to Jerusalem. They're sort of allowed to rebuild the temple, but they're still a subjected people. They are still an oppressed people. And so there's this sense of loss, this sense that maybe the promise that God made to David hasn't really come true. And then, again, one more big empire, the Romans come along and take over much of that part of the ancient world. And that's where we find ourselves when we get to the New Testament. So in the time of Jesus, there is this sense that Israel is under subjugation, and they have been since the exile, and that they've never really fully returned, that they've never really restored the glory of David, that the promise to David, that maybe it didn't work out, that maybe God wasn't faithful to his covenant with David. And the book of the prophet Isaiah, one of the most cited books in the New Testament, by the way, the book of the prophet Isaiah takes place during this time of exile. So from just before Israel is shipped off to Babylon, and actually until just after they get back during the Assyrian reign. That's the historical scope of the book of Isaiah, right? But Isaiah prophesies something. Isaiah prophesies that even though David's line failed in many ways, that God was still going to make good on his covenant, right? That a child from David's line would be born to sit on David's throne, to fully restore Israel from exile, and even more than that, that this child was going to be Emmanuel, that this child was going to be God with us, and that his birth would be beautiful and glorious like the sun rising on a people long in darkness. It's, we're going to read that verse this morning from Isaiah 9. This is Isaiah's prophecy of Emmanuel, that God was going to keep his promise to David. We're just going to read verse 2 and then verse 6 and 7 from Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So that's it. That's our four pieces of context. We see the Abrahamic covenant, this national blessing with the, the knowledge that at some point Israel is going to bless the world, that through Israel we're going to see a universal blessing. We see the exodus from Egypt, meaning that God is a God who delivers people from slavery. We see the expectation for a Messiah in Hannah's prayer and the Davidic covenant, as well as in many places in Scripture. But that God is the anointed one, the one strong to save. And we see the expectation that Israel is going to be saved from exile, right? Isaiah's prophecy of Emmanuel, that the king is coming, that God is coming, right? So with that context, right, sharing, I hope, a little bit in the expectation that God was one day going to raise up a Messiah, someone to sit on the throne of David and restore Israel, sharing in the hope and the knowledge that, that God is a God who visits and redeems his people from slavery, and that God intended, even from the beginning of the Old Testament, to use Israel to bless the world, let's look back at Zechariah, right? Let's, with that context, I hope sharing a little bit in the expectation that Israel felt, the context that Israel had. Let's look back at our, our story in Luke. The first verse just says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. It sounds maybe a little bit generic. The first word is Benedictus, and so this song is in Latin, it's Benedictus, so it's often called the, the Benedictus. Um, it sounds familiar, that, that phrasing, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, but it's actually somewhat unique. It doesn't show up too often in Scripture, um, and when it does, it usually shows up in the context of blessing uh, God for his Messiah, blessing God for his King. There's a particular context, which I think we, we can see is, is relevant, and this gets, it, it's, a, it's a little complicated to put the pieces together in some ways. But we mentioned King David and the promise given to King David. And in 1 Kings 148, we have the narrative of David's death. And this is what it says, I'll read it. And the king also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. So I think what Zechariah does is he picks this phrase, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from this recognizable prayer that David prays, and he takes it into his own context, but in that he's signaling that a king is coming to sit on the throne. Right? It's a subtle thing, but if we see that context, if we see the context of that construction, it's profound, right? That Zechariah is signaling that the king is returning, right? Real life Lord of the Rings in our passage today. Um, second half of the first verse. For he has visited and redeemed his people. The word visited has a very specific connotation in the history of Israel. God visited Moses in the burning bush. God visited 
Israel as they were subject to slavery in Egypt. And by the way, when God visits, in the Greek, there's this, this sense in which when God visits, it's not as if he steps in for 15 minutes and then he's gone, right? It's, it's a, a translation of this same word could be God interposed or God interjected, that God changed the situation. For he has visited and redeemed, redeemed, the second significant word of this line. Redeemed means to buy back, or in the Greek, it literally means to liberate or to loosen, to loosen a rope or a chain, right? To free from bondage, to free from slavery, to loosen. So Zechariah is claiming that what God once did for Israel under Egypt, he's going to do again. He's going to visit his people and redeem them from slavery. So with the Old, con- Old Testament context that we looked at, we can look at just this first verse of the hymn, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and see that Zechariah is claiming two things. He's claiming the king is coming back to sit on the throne, and, and we're going to be rescued from slavery. Verse 69, let's keep going. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Right? The image of the horn. Zechariah pulls directly from Hannah's prayer as she was given Samuel as a child. The horn of salvation, the anointed king. And by the way, I think this is really cool. This struck me this week. Um, the horn is not what we might think of as a musical horn. It's like the like four-foot-long ox's horn. Like it's this, it's this symbol of absolute strength in the ancient world. This is the strongest thing that Zechariah could think of. So when he says the horn of salvation, he's saying the absolute strength of God to accomplish salvation for his people through his Messiah, his anointed one. Let's keep reading, verse 70 and 71. As he spoke by the mouth of his prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Well, who are Israel's enemies, right? Perhaps the average Israelite in the day of Zechariah would have been like, yeah, we're going to get the Romans. But the New Testament kingdom of God looks a little different. And Zechariah, I think, prefigures that here. Because think of Peter, right? Peter, on the night that Jesus was arrested, he draws a sword. He was still expecting at some point that Jesus was just going to take out the Roman legions, and that's how he was going to take the throne. It took even the apostles a long time to understand that, that Jesus was to be king, but that his kingdom was not of this world, as he says to Pilate. That the liberation that Jesus was going to bring about, that the enemies he was going to defeat were not simply political enemies, were not simply the enemies of Israel. And slowly the New Testament allows us to see, and it's prefigured even here, the enemies that Zechariah identifies. Sorry. The enemies that Zechariah identifies are sin and death and fear. Right? So Zechariah's song, prophetic song, foreshadows this shift in the understanding of who our enemies are and who we are to be redeemed from. Let's keep going. Verses 72 to 75. To show the mercy promised to our fathers 
and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Right? So it's not just the Davidic covenant that is being fulfilled in Zechariah's day. It's also the Abrahamic covenant, the initial promise to Israel. And what this foreshadows is that this is the moment that the national blessing becomes the universal blessing, that the national salvation becomes the universal salvation. Right? And I love the line that we, being delivered from our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That God was doing something new. That a new way was being made, a new thing was being done to allow all people to fulfill our purpose in life in knowing God and in serving him rightly. We'll keep going. Verse 76 to 79, take us to the end of the song. And you, child will be called the prophet of the Most High. This is him referring to John. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. to give light to those who sit in darkness and then in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Zechariah picks up explicitly the imagery from the prophet Isaiah. From Isaiah 9 and also from other portions from Isaiah 42, from Isaiah 60, that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be pictured as a light to the world. Right? Zechariah has announced that the Abrahamic covenant is being fulfilled, that Israel was being rescued from slavery, that the Davidic covenant was being fulfilled. And now he says that the Isianic Messiah, the anointed one, is here, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Emmanuel, God with us, is coming in the birth of Jesus. It's an incredible poem that we get to look at today. I think to conclude this morning, I hope that we see three things in this song from Zechariah. I hope we see one, who deliverance is for, as we see two, what deliverance is from, and three, who deliverance is accomplished by. That deliverance first is for those who sit in darkness. Or as it says in Isaiah, those who dwell in deep darkness. Those who feel imprisoned or enslaved by sin. Those who say with David in the Psalms, I know my sin is ever before me. Or as Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I hope that we see in this song that Zachariah sings that deliverance is for the broken, that Christmas is for the broken, that Jesus' coming is for those who sit in darkness.
I hope we see that deliverance is from sin and death and fear. That the salvation, the deliverance being accomplished is not nearly a political salvation. It's the salvation of our souls. It's the bringing out of our souls from the shadow of death. And I hope we see that deliverance is accomplished by Jesus, the horn of our salvation, the anointed king, the God strong enough to save, to deliver us from slavery to sin and to bring us to righteousness and to peace. I hope we see that in his tender mercy, God has come for us who sit in the shadow of death. I love the imagery that Zechariah brings in from Isaiah. I hope that we see that before Jesus, our sin and the death it purchases for us are as powerless as the darkness of night before the rising sun. Before Jesus, our sin and the death it purchases for us are as powerless as the darkness of night before the rising sun. That this is the good news of the gospel that we see in our passage this morning, that we are not saved by our own strength or by our own efforts, that we're not going to work our way to God, that we're not going to work our way out of the darkness, but that the light comes to us and that we're saved by the strength of our Messiah, by the horn of our salvation, by Jesus who came to deliver us. One last note. The next time that Satan tempts you to believe that you are too sinful to be saved, that the darkness is too thick, I hope that you can respond that you know your weakness, but that Jesus is the horn of your salvation, that the gospel is the power of God to save you and to give you rest and peace and righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are strong to save us, that the light has come into the world and that the darkness has not overcome it. I pray that you would impress on us again this morning your gospel, that you are powerful to save us that we would rest in the righteousness that Jesus accomplished for us and the deliverance that Jesus accomplished for us in coming for us, that he might bring us to himself. In Jesus' name, amen.